It was way back in 2012 that uh, we hosted a civil on-air debate between progressive theologian and author Dr. Diana Butler-Bass and conservative New York Times columnist Ross Douthat. The meeting was inspired by a public correspondence between the two focused on the question, is the decline of American religion a result of denominations being too soft or too hard? Conventional wisdom has held that it is the unyielding and unpromising dogma of conservative denominations that people hunger for, a point Douthat made with great confidence. Now, however, a snapshot emerges suggesting the truth is far different from that belief. And back with us to discuss these developments is Dr. Diana Butler-Bass. Diana, it's been too long. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. Oh, it's great to hear your voice. I always love being with you, Welton. So how significant do you think these new findings are in the ongoing debate about where organized religion needs to go? Well, I think that it's very significant. Um, The Southern Baptist statistics just came out this week, and they showed a decade-long decline where the Southern Baptist Convention has lost more than a million people. And if you stretched it back for another five or six years, even before that, it would be well over um, a million. So what this does is it shows it shows the lie of a false, you know, this false narrative that we've mm-hmm. been believing for a long time, and that was that only conservative churches could grow. And what I argued with with Ross Douthat back five years ago was saying that, well, how do you account for the fact that membership is weakening in the Southern Baptist Convention and in the Roman Catholic Church, which is not a liberal church in so many ways, um, and in places like the Missouri Synod Lutherans, uh, which is a very quickly declining um, Lutheran denomination, which is very conservative. And nobody's really ever had an answer for that, except everyone would always say, well, it's just a blip. You know, it's mm-hmm. just some weird membership problem, and everything will be back to normal pretty soon. These are very robust denominations, and they're all going to grow. Um, But I was never convinced uh, that that was the case. And what I was arguing then, and continue to argue now, that cultural circumstances surrounding religious life and religious uh, choice are far more important than the specific theology of any one denomination. So what I have said, and I believe even more deeply because I think the data is now much more strongly pointing in that direction, is that the the issue is not whether you're a liberal or conservative denomination that's irrelevant. The issue is, are you a congregation that provides a way of meaningful life uh, for people to be able to to navigate, uh, you know, chaotic times and to be able to connect with God, to experience uh, a deep sense of the, of the Spirit, to be able to love and be compassionate. And that's what makes uh, religious communities vibrant, uh, not whether they're liberal or conservative. You've spoken, Diana, right here on this show and elsewhere about the struggles and even losses of organized uh, progressive religion might be necessary and even 
positive developments in a time of change and evolution. So how does that thinking apply to conservative organized religion? Well, what I, I think is happening is that conservative uh, Christian denominations are now going through what many liberal churches went through about 30 or 40 years ago. And that is uh, more liberal churches like the mainline Presbyterians and the Episcopalians, the mainstream Lutherans, the Methodists, the Congregationalists, they had all become incredibly sort of cozy um, with power and the status quo. Mm -hmm. So in the 1950s, when you thought of uh, political life and you thought of religious life, those two things were always deeply connected. And you would think of something like Dwight Eisenhower, um, you know, uh, praying in, in public, or the putting in God we trust on our, our money, mm-hmm. or a chaplain getting up in front of the Senate and praying a Protestant prayer. And so there was a sort of coherence between this, the politics of mid-20th century and mostly liberal Protestantism. Mm-hmm. Um, that coherence, that that willingness of liberal Protestants to be so close to the political order, so close to the status quo, undermined their ability to have any kind of um, prophetic vision and really undermined their ability to be anything other than just sort of the the church of getting along. Mm-hmm. Um, for mainline Protestants, that fell apart in the 1960s because of I think mostly education status is that mainline Protestants tended to be wealthier. That meant that they had higher education status, and that meant that the social questions of the day, particularly around Vietnam, the civil rights movement, women's rights, um, those questions all began to stir um, in the culture. And for, for liberal Protestants, the issue was, well, do we support the status quo? Or do we throw our lot with these newer sorts of voices mm-hmm. about um, justice and uh, human rights? Mm-hmm. And that sort of problem, which way do we go? Do we support the, the government because Christians are always supposed to stand with Caesar? Mm-hmm. Or do we begin to live differently because this, the wind of the Spirit is, pushing us to live differently, and there's a different vision of justice that we haven't seen before. That problem ripped uh, mainline Protestantism into, and they could not figure out which, how to handle it. Um, their children went one way, and the parents went another way, and their churches literally collapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was easy to say, oh, well, see, the problem is liberal politics. If you never addressed liberal politics, your churches would be just fine. But in that vacuum, conservative churches became the churches of the status quo. And so, once mainline Protestant was, Protestantism was out of the way, we especially, especially, I think we basically developed something that I would call mainline evangelicalism. And that is denominations like the Southern Baptist Convention and other sorts of evangelical churches cozied up to the state. And all of a sudden, it was their pastors who were giving the prayers, and the presidents came to their conventions. And they were the sort of coherent religious political alliance. Mm-hmm. And the same thing has happened to them that happened to liberal Protestants around 1960. 
and that is new voices of justice have risen up uh, in gay and lesbian communities around issues of, of racial justice, pushing the civil rights movement uh, p- further, and a pushback on uh, the new Jim Crow. Uh, certainly the women's rights movement has expanded into communities that include persons of color, women of color. And so you have these all these new voices of justice that have all risen up, and evangelicals have been completely and un- completely unable to address them in any meaningful way. And so they have continued their, the, the leaders of evangelical churches have continued their alliance with the powers that be, and the children of evangelicals are saying, hey, look, we, we don't buy it. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what's happening right now in the Southern Baptist Convention, is that the youngest generations are going away. They're saying, we, don't, we, we, we won't be the church of the status quo. We don't, we don't buy your theological vision. We are very angry about this. We don't want you to be the church of Caesar. And meanwhile, the other people who are still in charge are saying, hey, but look, that's where the money comes from. And so exactly what has happened, what happened to mainline Protestants 40, 50 years ago is happening to evangelicals now. Hmm. My guest is Diana Butler-Bass. We're discussing how conservative and progressive religious denominations are responding to changes in membership numbers as well as in the outside world. On both the liberal side and the conservative side, did churches know what was happening? Were they in touch with what was happening, or are they seeing it uh, in retrospect and thinking, well, I wish we'd seen this earlier? Well, you know, I think that uh, mainline Protestants couldn't see it. Mm-hmm. because it happened to them first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there was yeah. no historical precedent to point to. And it just was like, ow, this really hurts. This is confusing. This is the way we've always done things. Why is it not working now? Right. And so so I think that for them, they were sort of really lost in the woods with this one. Um, but the but evangelical Protestants, having the historical precedent, should have seen mm-hmm. what was coming. Yeah. And they have ignored it. Yeah. Are there lessons that go beyond dogma that you think all organized religion can learn from what you just described? Um, well, you know, I think some people would hear my, my analysis and say, well, that just means the church should stay away from politics. Um, what, I, what I think is the deeper lesson, and I don't, I don't believe that the church can stay away from politics, I yeah. believe the gospel, um, and I think most religions have an inherent kind of political visions, right. um, and and those those always need to be part of a vibrant faith of any sort. Um, but what we do need to stay away from is the identification of particular partisan agendas with. Um, religion. Mm-hmm. And so that's a little difficult. Uh, people have a tough time, especially in the United States, separating uh, politics, the life of the polis, the good of the city, uh, from partisanship. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what, ha- what happened, of course, with the, with the, the left, mm-hmm. the mainline Protestants, initially, people forget this, initially things like the Episcopal Church were called the Republican Party at prayer. Yeah. yeah. And um, they, that, what, what happened with them is that that's not the case any longer. Mm-hmm. 
Instead, you get in most mainline churches a fairly robust split um, between people in party registration. There are still plenty of people, mostly the older generations, who are Republicans in mainline denominations, but there are lots of people who are independents, and there are lots of people who are Democrats. And so mainline denominations tend to have a very, very broad range of political identification, um, whereas um, evangelical denominations are now the Republican Party at prayer. And so, again, it's almost like the Southern Baptist Convention just said, hey, look, we're going to be Episcopalians. (laughs) (laughs) They would hate to hear me say that. Yes, they would. (laughs) (laughs) But we're going to be the Episcopalians of the 1950s. And, you know, it didn't didn't work for Episcopalians in the 1950s. And the lesson that the Episcopal Church learned, I think, was that... um, that kind of rigid partisanship when it closes out voices of prophetic um, power and when it closes out possibilities of the renewal of the church, um, that that's very dangerous and that the church has to be a far more um, responsive um, entity to the way in which the wind of God is blowing. And, uh, you know, people say, well, that's just the wind of culture. Well, you know, sometimes it's actually the wind of God. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> we just yeah. had Pentecost, uh, yeah. you know, in the Christian calendar, and that's yeah. all about the wind of God showing up in unexpected places. Yeah. And that's a part of the story of Christian, Christian faith, is that the wind shows up um, and changes people when you least expect it. And so, uh, you know, denominational structures don't like the wind, you know, they yeah. like... Yeah. They like order. <laughs> and so so I think that one of the things that the mainline churches really learned, and it took them 40 years to really get the lesson, and they still haven't entirely gotten it, is that, um, you know, you, you, you can't afford to be too cozy with Caesar. Yeah. And that you really do have to have a sort of a fluidity and an openness uh, to however and wherever the word is speaking in our own day. And that's very hard for institutional religions, but I think, I I really do see that in many of the mainline churches, and I work with all of them all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, There is far more openness to uh, the possibilities of change and transformation than probably there have been in the last half century. Mm. Well, listen, let me ask you this. Uh, Where... Do you see people of faith who are alienated from organized religion? Where are they going? Well, that's still that's still up for grabs, um, because the quadrant of people who are leaving religion behind it, it appears that the largest exodus is states are happening out of conservative churches. Um, there are still people who are leaving mainline churches, but when you dig a little deeper into the data, it's mostly because mainline churches um, are older, mm-hmm. and a lot of the leaving of mainline churches is due to death. Mm-hmm. Um, I know pastors in mainline churches that celebrate you know, 30 or 40 funerals a year and maybe two baptisms. Right. Right. And, and so there's a demographic sort of thing that is going on that's very powerful. So when you see people, quote-unquote, leaving the main line, that means they're just going to go see Jesus face-to-face. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the people who are leaving and are angry 
and are leaving are mostly uh, what I would call the brokenhearted Catholics mm-hmm. and the really angry um, evangelicals. And um, where the disenchanted and angry evangelicals and the brokenhearted Catholics wind up is anybody's guess at this point in time. Right now they're, they're floating. Diana, I, um, I know you well enough to know that at any one moment uh, you're doing about 10 different things. Um, <laughs> would, you, um, would you tell us uh, what we should know about what you're doing, what kind of work you're doing right now? What I'm doing right now, interestingly enough, is I have been paying more attention to my vocation as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, which is probably one of the things that you would not have expected me to say. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've, I've spent the last almost 20 years uh, working with congregations and denominations, trying to help them to understand the future. And in recent last two years, maybe kind of quietly, mm-hmm. I felt a deep personal call um, to pay attention to the parameters of my own spiritual life, uh, particularly as it relates to being a writer, and to listen more carefully to the, what I would call maybe the, the heartbeat of the world that is around me. And so I pay attention to trends. I'm a, you know, I, I continue to be involved in politics. I'm always engaged in social media. Um, but I've also been writing poetry. I have been reading a lot of poetry. I've been just now beginning the process of speaking at more writers' workshops and helping mm-hmm. people to connect with the beauty and the power of words. Mm. And um, I have just finished, it comes out in the spring, um, a book called Grateful, mm. which is on the the spiritual and personal transformation a very transformational uh, practice of gratitude, but not to just think of that as sort of an isolating, you know, oh gosh, if I'm grateful and I say thank you enough, I'm going to be healthy and wealthy, kind of like gratitude is the new prosperity gospel stuff. Um, and there's a lot of that out there. <laughs> mm. but, I, but I take the personal side of it and I expand it into a communal vision, and the book ends up with a a very surprisingly powerful and probably the most radical thing I have ever written, a chapter on a new vision for politics, which I refer to as the politics of gratitude. Hmm. Look forward to that. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It, it cha- every, the last couple books I have written have actually converted, I've actually converted myself, which is, to something new that I needed, to a place, a new place I needed to go. And so as a writer, I just, I'm kind of, I feel sort of like I'm almost exploding, you know, and I feel all, all kinds of energy in that part of my life. And so that's why I'm, I'm paying attention to that. And I think for me, you know, as a Christian person, one of the, the things I, I have just recited over and over again is, in the beginning was the Word. Um, and to think about how the Word is the source of all of created goodness. And, um, you know, it's a very provocative thing to be thinking about, um, especially this week when there's, I'm just listening to the news and every, all the commentators are all agitated because, oh, there's, there's so many words in the culture and so many words have, have led to this terrible shooting in Alexandria, you know. And it's like, well... You know, it's not really words. It, it, words are words are powerful, yes, 
Um, and words create realities, but it's not all words that lead us to that kind of negative thing. Um, you know, it's what I what I sometimes think of it now as the anti-word. Hmm. It's the an- we live in the age of the anti-word, and that is we're surrounded constantly by lo- by words that are taking life away. So words are not the problem. As a matter of fact, we need more be- we need more words. But what we need are words that will limit the effects of the anti-word. And so, so that's what I'm doing right now. I, and I say, I bet that's a little surprising to you. Well, a little bit. But I know uh, that that just shows your flexibility and the way that you're sensitive to what's going on, not only in the world, but in your life as well. Dr. Diana Butler-Bass is an independent scholar of religion, a historian, and a prolific writer. Diana is the author of numerous books. She just told you about one that's coming out. Her latest book is titled Grounded, Finding God in the World, A Spiritual Revolution. And it's always valuable to talk with you as well as inspiring. And thanks for taking time to be with us again on State of Belief Radio. Thank you for asking me, and I really hope that... um, congregations can grow and find new paths of vitality because we need good ones and we need fewer bad ones. (laughs) Well said. (laughs) 